Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. In this program, we'll look at books, ideas, new research, intellectual currents, and cultural trends that can help us better understand what's happening in China's politics, foreign relations, economics, and society. Join me each week for in-depth conversations that shed more light and bring less heat to the way we think and talk about China. Seneca is supported this year by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a national resource center for the study of East Asia. If your organization cares about deepening our understanding of China, please consider sponsoring Seneca. Email me at SenecaPod at gmail.com and let's see what we can do together. You can also support me as an individual by subscribing to the Seneca Substack. That's Seneca.substack.com. It features bonus podcasts and essays that listeners will enjoy, and I am pleased to announce that many of the most popular columnists from The China Project have now joined me over on the Seneca Substack, including Jay Carter of This Week in China's History fame, Paul French, who writes The Ultimate China Bookshelf, and Andrew Methvin, who writes Chinese Phrase of the Week. So with all this new stuff on offer, it was no longer possible to try and update both Substack and Patreon, so please note that I am discontinuing Patreon. I will continue to move people over to Substack if they've signed up with Patreon or if they continue to trickle in. Uh, you will receive the full offer, uh, whatever you paid for on Patreon, even after the paywall goes up. Uh, so just make sure to sign up at Seneca.substack.com and ignore what I say about Patreon in just a bit. This week on Seneca, an episode recorded live via Zoom on February 22nd, in which I moderated a panel on China and the war in Ukraine commemorating the second anniversary of the Russian invasion. I'll introduce the guests in more depth in what follows, but very quickly, they were Vita Kholod, who chairs the Ukrainian Association of Sinologists, and who convened this session, Bartosz Kowalski of the University of Łódź in Poland, Liu Xiaoyu of Peking University's School of International Studies, and Klaus Laris of UNC Chapel Hill. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to this session on the Ukrainian Factor in Chinese Strategy, an online roundtable convened by the Ukrainian Association of Sinologists. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Vienna, Austria. 
I will serve as moderator of this event. I am the host of the Seneca Podcast, which is an independent weekly English language discussion on current affairs in China. You can subscribe to that podcast wherever you find your podcasts or listen and read the transcripts as well as essays and columns at Seneca.substack.com or at patreon.com slash Seneca. Today, we are taping this roundtable so we can make it available in a few weeks as a podcast. So let me quickly introduce my distinguished guests. First, a very warm welcome to my friend Vita Holod, who was so instrumental in convening this conversation and who so graciously invited me to be a part of it. Uh, Vita is chairman of the board of the Ukrainian Association of Sinologists and is currently, I am delighted to say, a visiting scholar at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, just up the street from my home in Chapel Hill. Welcome to Seneca, Vita. So wonderful to finally have you on the show after uh, being in our town for a while. Thank you so much, Kaiser. We are so lucky to have you moderated this event today. I am the lucky one, absolutely. Uh, Next, let me introduce Professor Bartosz Kowalski, uh, who is a senior analyst at the Center for Asian Affairs at the University of Łódź in Poland. Uh, thank you, Professor Kowalski, for taking the time to join us and to to share your insights and your thoughts. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here. We're also joined by Liu Xiaoyu, who is assistant professor at the School of International Studies at Peking University, who is a very well-known scholar of China's foreign relations. Such an honor and a pleasure to have you here, Professor Liu. Thank you very much. Uh, it is my pleasure to be here as well. Fantastic. And last, by no means least, is my good friend Klaus Laris, who is Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs, also at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but this year a fellow at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute in D.C. Many of you will know Professor Laris as the man who runs the outstanding Krasno Lecture Series at UNC. And as many might have noticed, UNC, our little town, Chapel Hill, is a little overrepresented in this event. I have only to say... That our whole region, the Triangle in North Carolina, really does punch above its weight when it comes to international affairs, as in many, many other things. So today, as we're all very aware, is February 22nd here, at least in Austria, uh, where I am at the moment. And in just two days, many people around the world will somberly, I think sorrowfully, mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All wars must end. Uh, the questions that we're examining today are not directly about the forces fighting the war, but rather about a country that is not directly involved, China. We are going to discuss China's view on the war, how or indeed whether at all that view has evolved over the course of the war so far, and how Ukraine factors into China's broader strategy. We are also going to look at China's efforts, such as they are, to mediate and whether they ultimately matter at all. And, of course, we'll look at the impact of the war and China's, quote-unquote, pro-Russian neutrality, as some have termed it, how that has affected China's relations with the EU specifically. Before we dive into the deeper questions, let's start with something that only transpired in just the last few days, and that is Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba's meeting with top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi. So, Vita, let me turn to you first. What do we know from the readouts uh, from either side about the meeting, either from the Ukrainian or the Chinese media or from other news sources? 
Uh, yeah, of course. Um, if if I may, first of all, I'd like to express my heartfelt gratitude to the efforts of the Ukrainian armed forces in protecting our people and territory and also defending uh, Europe in these challenging times. And Ukraine is really heading into the third year of this war with no clear resolution in sight. And Ukraine has found itself in a geopolitically complicated situation caught between the interests and ambitions of multiple superpowers. And uh, not only China, the EU as well as the US currently appears not so united in their approach to Ukraine. And China sees us as a proxy war with the United States. And it was predictable from the very beginning, China would not take Ukrainian side. Mm-hmm. And China has uh, just adopted its classical, pragmatic, and cautious approach to this conflict or crisis or issue, Wei how it called this war. And we can see a common strategy for China in delicate geopolitical situation, distancing itself from the uh, sensitive questions, not deeply involving itself in negotiation and pushing the sides to the peaceful resolution. And uh, you just mentioned the Munich Security Conference, and Ukraine was across almost every discussion. As right. Timothy Snyder said, Ukraine is fighting the world war. It's not, it's a global war. It's not Ukrainian issue or crisis. And in Munich, we've seen wide media coverage, including big Chinese delegation, and also uh, seen tankers from China. And I, as I know, Phoenix, uh, conducted the interview with Mr. Kuleba, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he said that Ukraine replying to the peace negotiation, possibility of peace negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. Mr. Kuleba said that Ukraine desires peace more than any other country mm. and strives to restore territorial integrity. So he met finally with one year. And it was significant for Ukraine-Chinese relations because since the start of the full-scale of wars, the number of high-level meetings was very limited. Even Ukrainian politicians and diplomats really work hard to maintain this constant dialogue with China. And this time, Mr. Kuleba invited Chinese side to participate in the peace summit in Switzerland. We didn't get any feedback so far, but we need to gather a broad coalition of countries for peace talks and for discussing our security guarantees. Because Ukraine voluntarily gave up all the nuclear weapons many years ago and didn't get anything in return. So we need to rebuild our security policy strategy from zero. And from the main stage during the interview, one E said that uh, in Munich, that China will play its mediating role when the sides are ready to negotiate, but it's unlikely so far, as long as Putin still has Russian troops on our territory. At the same time, Wang Yi stressed out that China doesn't supply little weapons to Russia. And China maintains a stance against the use of nuclear weapons. Right. Yeah, and it, it can serve as a deterrent factor influencing Russia, but it's only a guess. Ukraine needs security guarantees while we are not in NATO member. That's a crucial moment for Ukraine. And the Chinese constructive role is still a mystery. 
for Ukrainian people. And we need to explain again and again that the, the world, it's not just black and white, but when people are dying, it, it's its not what Ukrainian people want to, 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 to hear, uh, just beautiful words. And President Zelensky and our diplomats still want to see China sitting at the same table with other countries. And when I was asked why uh, in America, so the, 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 uh, the answer could be very simple. Ukraine is trying to keep the balance and to avoid the worst case scenario. And when you are vulnerable, you just need all kinds of support, especially from the great powers. And you don't need a, a new, another enemy. So that, that's just very simplistic, but it's, it is what it is. And I would stop here and I would like, love to listen to my colleagues. In, uh, of course, the, the meetings that took place in Switzerland just ahead of the convening of the World Economic Forum, 87 countries, including 15 from Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, took part in it. Uh, and China was very notably absent. The Chinese delegation and Ukrainian participants in the World Economic Forum, which I happen to be attending, uh, were both asked very pointedly about Chinese participation. Uh, and I, I don't know whether there was any progress made uh, on the sidelines at Munich. No, no, no. We didn't get any the feedback so far. So right. just, yeah. So we are waiting and pushing and really our, for our official side, we really want to see China sitting at the same table with other countries, our allies, and to build up these security guarantees. Okay. It's very crucial for Ukraine. In many recent conversations uh, just before this show uh, at a seminar that I participated here uh, here in Austria at uh, in the city of Salzburg, uh, we found that it's often useful to kind of invert this usual question about what does China want and ask instead questions about what other parties want from China. So I know you've, you've, you've already t talked a little bit about this, uh, about what Kiev and its backers realistically think they can get from China. I mean, they clearly believe that something can come of all this urging China to take a role in bringing the conflict to a close. So let me turn to Bartosz Kowalski. Uh, what is your sense of what the allies are hoping for from China? And has anything at all so far that you've seen tangible from this two years of, of, of effort come to your notice? If, if they're disappointed in China, how big of a factor is that in terms of the strain that's been placed on EU-China relations compared to the many other issues, everything from exports of electric vehicles to, to values issues like Xinjiang? Um, thank you. Uh, before I move to this question, I would like to go back to, to the Munich conference because uh, when you compare the Chinese narratives uh, from um, from this year with the Munich conference last year, it's, uh, it's I can feel that uh, nothing has changed particularly. Uh, there is still um, China emphasizes that uh, it wants peace talks, it wants peace, it wants peace. Uh, however, at the same time, it uh, indirectly blames U.S. for waging the, the war. Wang uh, Yi was asking rhetoric questions in the in Munich. Uh, who wants really uh, the war in Ukraine to to continue? Uh, who does uh, what? What kind of power does not care about Ukraine lives? And the damages uh, the Europe suffers uh, during the war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, uh, I believe that uh, uh, 
it's it's it's, it's kind of game of appearances. China uh, throughout these two years has not really made any meaningful step uh, to be seen as a power which wants to change the status quo. I mean the 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 conflict, the, the war which is um, going on in in Ukraine. And, and there was an expectation somehow that you held that they would, or is this? Uh, well, from my point of view, the um, these expect these expectations, which are profound in Europe, for example, in Poland, in Munich, the Foreign Minister Sikorski appealed to one year that uh, uh, to you know to stop the war, to restrict Russia. But these appeals are uh, repeated are repeated uh, constantly since the outbreak of the full scale war in February. Are, are they rhetorical? Are they performative? Or are they genuine with an actual realpolitik expectation that, that Beijing would take such action? Uh, it's, 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 it's hard to answer. Uh, from, from my point of view, the only way to restrict Russia's advancement is to, to cut down on trade between China and Russia. The, the Russian supplies to, to, to China are key uh, for Russia to withstand Western sanctions. And I'm not talking about little weapons, which are not delivered by China, but any kind of uh, uh, supplies that are uh, crucial to Russia's wartime effort. So what then is stopping the EU from sanctioning China then? Why not uh, extend secondary sanctions to China over its uh, continuing trade? Actually, it is happening. As you probably know, yesterday, uh, there was the first round of secondary sections. I mean, on on Chinese firms that are firms that are uh, um, conducting trade with uh, with Russia, and this is I I'm, I think that this is what Chinese business is afraid of, that it can be you know hit by ricochet uh, by this by this conflict by this war, and uh, well I I don't know what what will happen next, but we see the change of. Uh, of not only rhetoric, but also in um, particular moves uh, on the side of the EU. Interesting. So I want to turn quickly to, to Klaus Lars, and you can maybe give us your, your take. Uh, you are somebody who has studied a lot of conflicts and the processes that bring them to an end. What inducements can you imagine within the realm of the realistic, again, I, I mean, that are not performative or merely rhetorical, that might see Beijing respond positively whether those are sticks like secondary sanctions or carrots, you know, positive inducements or something entirely else, uh, to, you know, to get Beijing to do more of what the U.S. and the EU would like it to, and especially Kiev would like it to. In other words, what could the U.S., Ukraine, and the EU do to persuade Beijing to involve itself more? I say thank you, uh, Kaiser, and thanks everyone for joining us. Uh for this highly uh, interesting and I think um, a very important panel because the, the war in Ukraine is going to drag on and on until someone really takes a decisive uh, initiative. And unfortunately, I think it will not be the Chinese. At the beginning of the conflict, some of us or many of us, including myself, were really quite hopeful that China would take a mediating role in a constructive way and bring uh, the warring parties together and try to, you know, balance uh, uh, an out, a balance, uh, obtain a balanced uh, ceasefire at least. 
And that has not happened. And I think uh, to uh, reply immediately to your question, I think the main factor here which could bring that about, which um, could push uh, China into a more constructive mediating role, would be Europe, because Europe is a big loss to the Chinese fear. Uh, apart from Europe, where tensions have not become better at all in the last few years, apart from uh, Europe, uh, the Chinese, as far as I can see, have only obtained advantages from the conflict at the moment. You know, the United States is more distressed than it used to be. It is more distracted uh, by other conflicts around the world, now also by, by, by Gaza, of course, and its domestic situation is becoming increasingly polarized and increasingly difficult. That all distracts the United States from focusing too much on on Taiwan, on the Indo-Pacific, on China as such. And I think uh, that has been recognized because uh, the San Francisco um, uh, summit, which was quite uh, useful, quite good, I think, has really uh, relaxed relations with China. Uh, and I think Biden had no choice because the U.S. seems to be overstretched. There's too much going on in international affairs and now increasingly in domestic affairs for the administration not to try to at least calm down relations with China. Then when you turn to Russia, then China has obtained quite advantages from Russia. Russia has clearly become a junior partner to uh, China, much more so than even two years ago. On top of that, uh, the uh, energy situation has been turned into China's advantage, obtaining uh, more natural resources from Russia at much cheaper prices. And to talking about oil, I think that also applies to um, the, the uh, global south, where uh, uh, the wind is really moving towards China and towards Russia and away from the West. And that has an awful lot to do with the Ukraine war, but of course also now with, uh, with the recent Gaza conflict. But the disenchantment of the uh, global south with the United States and the Western world as such, I think is increasing at dramatic speed, which can only benefit other countries like China. So I think the Chinese, like many global powers, are realists. They look uh, at the world in realistic terms rather than in humanitarian or, 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 or human rights uh, or uh, sympathy uh, uh, dimensions. And of course, every individual Chinese leader, every individual Chinese also regrets the uh, loss of life and the torture and injuries and destruction. You know, I have no doubt that uh, Wang Yi will, of course, uh, generally uh, 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 regret that. But from a more global macro point of view, uh, everything is moving towards China. The only exception, as I said at the beginning, is the Europeans. Right. The attention is actually increasing. And I think the Europeans, therefore, would have the possibility to put more pressure on China to be perhaps uh, a little bit more of a mediator in the Ukraine conflict, above all right. Whether, economic means. Yeah, I wonder whether it's the pressure that 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 uh, could induce them to better uh, participation, more positive, proactive participation. Uh, because you know, I, I wanted to save Liu Xiaoyu for last because I think he can uh, has a better sense of how Beijing is apt to respond. What sorts of inducements might what help from that perspective? I mean, because you know, you t you talk about this sort of uh, relaxation of tensions after the uh, Xi Jinping and, and, and Joe Biden met in Woodside in south of San Francisco. 
Yes, for sure. And there was a lot of diplomacy over the summer. But the real sore points in the relationship, especially, you know, the, the export controls on, on, on quite an expanding list of high tech goods, uh, is what the real issue is. And that is also part of the reason why, uh, China feels increasingly like it needs to turn to Russia, right? And this is, this is, I think, uh, something that we're not maybe necessarily thinking through. So I want to hear about the perspective from China, uh, insofar as you're able, uh, Professor Liu to, to channel their sentiment. How has that developed over the last two years? Right. I think what I'm going to say is more, it's more like my personal assessment and also judgment on the situation. I understand. Now, frankly, let's go back to two years ago at the very beginning of the conflict. Uh, when I think that when China first heard about, learned about the news about the Russian invasion, it was actually accompanied with a, with a big shock. I don't think the Chinese decision makers are fully uh, well noticed and prepared on the scale of the military campaign that Russia is, was going to launch in Ukraine. So I think that that event uh, looks very much similar to the historical event in 1958. Hmm. When the mainland tried to take more offensive campaigns on Taiwan, it invited Khrushchev to come over to China. And after the visit, they concluded with this agreement saying that both sides has reached agreement on issues on international relations. And then day after Khrushchev left China, the mainland started bombing Taiwan. And the whole international society thought that this is a mutual agreement acknowledged by Soviet Union. And I think what happened in 2022 is exactly like the reversed relationship of that event with the winter uh, Beijing Olympics, when everyone thought that by announcing that the limitedist partnership, China was well informed and acknowledged Russia's further actions. But I think the result is, was exactly the opposite. I don't think China was well informed about what Russia was going to do. So it was put into a very kind of uh, awkward position uh, after what had, had happened. So this put China in a very kind of passive move, I think, for a whole year, uh, from February 2022 to about 2003, 23 February. Uh, where that China wants to see the 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 international responses, and then decided that how China uh, was going to act. So after that one year, you can see that there's kind of slow kind of adjustment of China's policy. That's uh, about this kind of limited involvement in the peace processes, sending out the, like the twelve points by China, and then President Xi Jinping had the call with Zelensky and appointed a special envoy uh, to visit Ukraine. So I think that that is what I see, like the gradual changes in terms of the Chinese position with regard to Ukraine. Hmm. Now, looking back at the point that made by the former two speakers, I think that a lot of people got disappointed on China's mediation efforts, saying that China was not doing enough to deter Russian aggression, was based on, on a misunderstanding of China's impact on Russia. I think that if Russia was unwilling to notify China about this uh, such a big military move, that also demonstrates that China actually has little impact or information about what Russia was planning and how Russia was going to coordinate with China. Uh, so I don't think China, even until today, exercised a key impact on Russia's top decision-making processes. 
which means that Russia, uh, like China, can access on the mediation process, especially putting pressure on Russia, what was expected by many of the European partners is simply unrealistic, because this is simply beyond the capacity of China uh, back then and also right now. But have the, Chinese, that, have the Chinese uh, tried to do that? And have they found out that it is impossible to get there? Or has the attempt not even been attempted as uh, on the basis of your reasoning that it's no point anyway? I don't think that from the previous experience that China had successfully in the past 20 years, I think so, has influenced the decision-making in Russia. Yeah, so I, I, it's interesting that you say this because... I. I for since the outbreak of the war, uh, this has been one of the questions that I've been at every opportunity asking people who might have informed opinions about this or informed, you know, actual insider knowledge of this. Now, I can't I can't claim to have gotten very, very high up, but I have talked at second hand to a number of reporters who are well sourced, and there is a an emerging consensus that just as you said, this came as quite a surprise and caused a lot of anger and frustration. You know, we saw heads roll like in the foreign ministry where Russianists were demoted, Europeanists and Americanists sort of raised up in the foreign ministry. Uh, there, there was, I think there was evidence uh, that we can point to that, that they were, were really caught quite off guard. And I have anecdotal evidence that Xi Jinping himself was quite, quite angry. The other point that you make you know, about the, the it, it's, it's, it's sort of, Strange to me that anyone would have harbored the expectation, um, but I want to. That that's maybe you know more of my own intuition than anything else. But one person uh, a few years ago suggested to me. I think this was even before the outbreak of the war that there is this sense of that that, and it's quite widely shared. Most people seem to, to believe this that they're in this strategic condominium between China and, and Russia. China is the senior partner, Russia very much the junior partner. And on the face of it, it would appear that way, I mean, in terms of their sheer comprehensive power. But because of Russia's ability to act so unexpectedly and disruptively, it seems more often to be the case that Russia is leading China around by the nose. Now, this isn't my idea. This comes from the, the former uh, uh, acting assistant secretary of state, for East Asia Pacific, Susan Thornton, who made the suggestion on on my program, and I I am I am not you know convinced completely either way right now, but I think it's we should keep our minds open to the idea that as I as Professor Lee suggested, China's ability to influence Russia is much more constrained than than we tend to believe. Now. Let me stay with you for just a little bit, uh, Liu Xiaoyu. You are probably the best placed person to uh, give me a sense for how public opinion in China, and I want to ask actually Vita, uh, Vita also is somebody who observes this, so I would love to hear from both of you on this question. So I want to ask first for, for Xiaoyu about sort of the more elite public opinion, that is within think tanks, within universities, within the, the kind of uh, strategic thinking community, has the 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 window of of allowable discussion shifted as we probably all know in the very early days of the outbreak of the war we tended to see anyone who came out with statements that didn't follow uh, pretty closely on the official line to see them censored to see them uh, buried and not really uh, given any kind of air airspace at all but has that changed so starting with you shall we and then I want to ask Vita and don't wait for me just please jump on in 
to talk about um, sort of broader public opinion and and uh, public opinion as being shaped by popular media. So shall we first? Yeah. So Kaiser, if you're referring to the environment within think tanks, within the intellectual community, I would argue actually since the very beginning of the conflict, since the war, the atmosphere did not change very much. Okay. Uh, but it is not in a restraining environment, strangely, because when the intellectuals gather together and discuss, I think that the point of views are being being exchanged relatively frankly, without reservation. I think the pressure that uh, the think tanks and also the policy analysts face are mainly from the public sentiment, mm. which we know is very polarized. So at least scholars that I personally know who have stood on opposite sides on the wall, their main pressure is neither from the government nor from their peers, but mainly from the public. Uh, uh. Yeah. So strangely speaking, that I... I do not think that among the international relations community, there has been this really restraining environment with regard to the discussion of the Ukrainian war. I've been very frankly and uh, openly stating my opinions since the very beginning, but I don't think my views have ever been censored. And also that last year, I personally visited Ukraine for one month and also came back and also participated in many sessions. In none of those occasions that have I've never been kind of in a way being asked to in a way tone down that my perspective on the war and what has been going on from my perspective. I'm sorry, I want to come back to that in a moment, uh, but because you've given us a very good opportunity to segue to that uh, source of pressure that of uh, of negative pressure on on that's shutting down conversations, it seems to come from popular opinion. So maybe Vita, talk about that. And then I do want to come back to you very quickly, uh, shall we, to ask you when you, about that trip to Ukraine and the sorts of conversations you had there and what you sensed about what their expectations were from China. So first, uh, Vita, please, the floor is yours. Vita? So f- first, I'd like to say that we don't have direct uh like relations with Ukrainian Sintank and Chinese Sintank. We don't have direct relations and we don't have chance to opinion exchanges. So we need to build this uh, this direction just to better understand each other and to know our like how Ukrainian thinks about Chinese position and Chinese is mediating role. It's important to say how Ukrainian, like ordinary Ukrainian, sees China, Chinese mediating role. And I'd like to say that according to Ukraine uh, l- latest opinion, uh, Ukrainian opinion poll, more and more Ukrainians consider China as, as a hostile country. And the latest opinion shows us that 50, uh, 58% of Ukrainians said that China is a hostile country. And it was only 34% in July last year. And if we, if we uh, listen to Ukrainian media, they would never say Chinese position is neutral. Rather, they would say that Chinese position is pro-Russian. And that's how Ukrainians see China. And we need uh, Ukrainian voices to be louder I- I- in China. And uh, even... We try to understand that uh, China has like millions of reasons to uh, strategic uh, development, strategic relations with Russia, but it doesn't help. So if we need a really solution and we have something in common between uh, so-called uh, Chinese peace plan and uh, Zelensky peace formula, 
that we need to find a common ground to develop this point that it's really strategically important for us. As I say, uh, nuclear security guarantee or food security, or we can talk about uh, captured soldiers. It also was in Chinese position plan how to help with humanitarian aid. So we have a lot in common to discuss, just we need to talk. And a Ukrainian diplomat and Ukrainian politician is really working hard to establish this dialogue. But I, if I, I see from my perspective and also from interview of uh, Ukrainian ambassador to China, that Chinese side, it's not willing to talk and like artificially blocked all these uh, dialogues. That's why we try to build another mechanism of a negotiation to ask or attract our alliance, the EU and US, to build this platform and, and to talk just in our favor. So that's important to have this dialogue in trilateral form, I think. If China sees us and like proxy war with the US, okay, we can take it. So let's talk in like three of us, the US, uh, China and Ukraine, or the EU, China and Ukraine. I think it would be helpful because uh, now, as we see, it's strategic mistake of China. China is losing European Union in terms of strategic relations in the future. So we are really want to talk and we have something in common between our positions. So we also invite our partners and alliance to advocate our position to China. And also, I'd like to add about China-Russian relations. It's also important as my like insight from uh, discussions from my Chinese colleagues that Xi Jinping doesn't see any substitute of Putin so far. That's why he tries to keep not Russia alive, but Putin alive. So it, it's important because he sees that Russia without Putin would be even worse than now. So it would be like chaos by a Chinese border. So that's like main strategic position of China. Why China trying to keep Putin alive? So I think we see now plenty of, of reasons in the, the selfish interest column for them not to take a pro-EU, pro-NATO, pro-US position, pro-Kiev position. Uh, and very few inducements, very few uh, reasons to accept for moral suasion. I have yet to meet a serious analyst of China who doesn't see them as a self-interest and reason and 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 sort of rational actor. And yet, uh, I only still have to hear sort of morally grounded and not realism-based arguments. So I'm, I'm wondering why those are missing. Um, Bartosz, do you, do you have any suggest uh, any ideas why this this disconnect? A, a, an analyst community that all agrees that China is a self-interested and largely rational actor, and yet a set of of inducements that only include sort of enjoining them to do the right thing. Yeah. So the, this is so far so-called like sanctimonious diplomacy, right? Right. I yesterday right. heard this term. And we like it. This is what what Chinese uh, policymakers accuse of uh, of the Western um, politicians, right? But, right. But I would like to to go back to to the point raised by just 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 uh, just a while ago that, uh, principally speaking, China is interested in keeping the status quo because it favors the Chinese economic gains in Russia 
be it oil prices, all sorts of economic gains. China wants to find a solution that satisfies the Kremlin. And the only solution that satisfies the Kremlin is the solution that will keep uh, Vladimir Putin in power, right? So you cannot, you cannot think of these two things uh, separately. And that said, uh, when, you, when you put it in the perspective of what happened uh, in the last two years and when China was uh, making some signs of you know, active involvement into the peace process, I mean the Zelensky, she called, one would see that it, it was also meant to, uh, to some extent, protect the Russian interest. Uh, why I'm saying that? For example, uh, before uh, she Zelensky called, Minister of Defense, uh, Chinese Minister of Defense, visited Russia. And it was widely seen, even in Russia, as an inspection of the Russian armed forces, whether they're ready to withstand the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And for this reason, it was speculated that she, uh, Jinping, agreed to uh, meet, uh, well, call, to have a phone call with uh, President Zelensky. Because the, the idea was that to convince uh, Ukraine, maybe to stop the counteroffensive, uh, because it would it could break the uh, advancements of the Russian forces or whatever. If we if we speculate whether China was surprised with the extent of the uh, Russian invasion into Ukraine, right in February, we can also wonder that each time Xi Jinping had substantial meeting or call with uh, Mr. Putin. Uh, the Russian side, side escalated the, the war effort, right? So it's, it's only a matter of interpretation. I personally do not, I'm not, don't really buy the story that uh, uh, China was really surprised with the offensive because in Europe, in the United States, there were repeated warnings that it's going to happen. And until the very last day of the, uh, well, of the first day of invasion, Chinese policymakers were, and the Chinese state media were repeatedly denying these calls. That it's it's safe, you know, it's intended to provoke tensions, etc., etc., etc. And when it happened, it 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 well, the narrative shifted towards amplifying the Russian narratives. That it was, it's a, I wouldn't say that it's just war, but the the the, the thing is that Russia has its right to to wage this war. Uh, because of NATO expansion, because uh, West didn't subdue to the uh, Russian demands raised in mid-December 2021, etc., etc. So, well, I think it, it, it's a matter of perspective, but from my perspective, it's the other way around, as, as you suggest. Why, why then would you think there would be so many people trying to spin um, Western journalists into believing that China was indeed surprised? There's, there's some motive then for that. Uh, it was obvious beginning um, around the, the time of the Bali meeting uh, in in twenty twenty two, just by November, that there was an effort uh, on the part of of China to to change the narrative. There, what what would China have to gain by convincing the Financial Times and other news organizations that uh, they were in fact caught off guard? I I, I wouldn't see any uh, uh, you know upside. It, it would seem to Maybe undermine, you know, leave an opening for a wedge to be driven. It doesn't seem like it would be a strategic rationale, but it it was clearly a deliberate 
effort to get the, that narrative out there. Any, anyway, uh, we we can this, we're getting off topic. I mean, does it really matter whether they were surprised or not? I think I, I think it does. I actually think it well, does. Well, let me just say, I think to some extent we all knew that something was coming, but a lot of us, including myself, were still surprised that the attack actually happened. We saw the troop buildup. We saw American intelligence warning for for many weeks and months. But I think a lot of us couldn't believe that it would still happen. And maybe it was a little bit like that with, with China as well. You know, they knew that something was happening, but they perhaps didn't quite believe that Putin would do it. But I think in the end, it doesn't really matter because uh, two years later, all sides have adapted to what is happening on the ground, whether you were surprised or startled at the beginning or not. It doesn't really, with hindsight, doesn't really matter. Uh, I think uh, how we would find out how important China is for Russia is, let's assume, just theoretically, if the Chinese stopped being involved at all in the war effort with whatever, no oil purchases, no uh, deliveries of anything, would that uh, bring Russia to its knees or would Russia be able to continue the war Nevertheless, and I think that is the question we have to answer to find out how important China is actually for Russia. And of course, uh, I agree with my Polish colleague. It is in the end, because we don't really have all the information available, in the end, it is largely also a matter of interpretation. But what I can guess from the Financial Times and other economic outlets, that the Chinese support, certainly economically, for, for China, uh, for, for Russia, is immensely important. And without that support, Russia's economy, which is not doing that great, though better than expected, uh, would probably be on its knees. And then the war effort, of, of course, would be uh, uh, affected. So that debate about senior, junior partner, again, you know, is, a, is really not a very fruitful debate because... Uh, in some respects, the Chinese are extremely important for Russia. In some other respects, Putin clearly ignores them and doesn't, you know, he's not the, the, the lucky or the, the servant of the Chinese. But I think no one would would uh, would, uh, would blame that. Um, right. I, I mean, that, that was precisely why I was suggesting that it is important whether they were surprised or not, whether she felt betrayed or not, because it does say something about the power relationship between China and Russia, which ultimately does matter. And yeah, okay, so you saying it doesn't matter, but I think no, that, no, no, that... sorry. I'm saying it mattered at that time, of course, and whether she felt humiliated mattered. But two years later, things have uh, developed a lot and she will have overcome any uh, feeling of betrayal or humiliation because for for real political for rational reasons i'm mm -hmm. sure he doesn't love putin i'm sure he probably hates him but that is not uh, uh, really important as far as i can see the question is of giving economic lifeline the the, the day after the invasion china lifted the uh, sanctions on uh, on the russian exports on, of wheat which were long expected by Russia. I think this, you know, says a lot about the uh, uh, the importance of uh, Chinese economic assistance to Russia's. Yeah, I don't think anyone is disputing that it has been absolutely important that it has really softened the impact of sanctions, that it has weakened the effectiveness of sanctions. Uh, but maybe Klaus Bartosz, both of you can can uh, 
talk about this. What's the evidence for extensive violation of 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 sanctions or for helping Russia to actually evade sanctions? Uh, has Beijing crossed any bright red lines? Do you think that there should be more stick? There should be more punitive action against Beijing for any of its financial dealings with Russia? Personally, if you ask me, I'm not asking for punitive action because I don't think that would get anywhere. You don't want to antagonize China further. You want to bring them in and engage. So even if there were legal reasons, and I really don't know whether there have been some legal fine lines which have been, you know, not been observed. But I think in the end, you know, you... Uh, it's the same as the United States, you know. If you put sanction on a superpower, on a you know, uh, it doesn't really get you anywhere. It is the uh, you need to persuade the, the 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 country to engage more and perhaps be more careful in purchasing oil and and gas and things like that. Whether the, the sanctions have been violated or not, we know that it does help Russia. Uh, okay. Whether or not it uh, 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 is a matter of uh, of legality, but it does help Russia, and the same, of course, applies to India and other countries who buy an awful lot of uh, natural gas and uh, and and other resources from Russia. You know, yeah. one needs to- <laughs> hydrocarbons and carbohydrates. Yeah, like yeah one, yeah, yeah, one needs to persuade these countries to perhaps change their minds, or you know. Uh, wonder whether it will help the, situ- the, the geopolitical global situation rather than putting sanction on them, which I can't see would help it either the case. Great. Right. Uh, let's leave that there for now. And uh, I don't think we can we can make much progress on, on that question. Let me turn to, to Professor Liu. Uh, shall you help us to understand the position that China formally put forward about a year ago? Uh, I should note that the foreign ministry does not actually describe this thing that we call the 12-point proposal as a proposal. They call it a position. Uh, but whatever they were, I, I think we can broadly agree they, they were disappointing to many observers as well as to participants, uh, in part because they seemed so generic, right? Shall, shall you, you explain uh, to me in an earlier conversation about what you believe the real 12-point position uh intention was and uh, how it fits into sort of broader ideas of, of, of uh, Chinese diplomacy. Yeah, sure. I mean, like the top point, as I explained earlier, I think that is after a whole year of wait and see that what China came up with in responding to the continuation of the Ukrainian war. And I think by doing that, its main intention is to demonstrate that well, China has some kind of basic norms or kind of positions with regard to the conflict, with the first principle as respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity, which means in future, if we imagine a scenario of Ukraine uh, winning the war, China would not have any difficulty of recognizing the 1991 border of Ukraine and saying that we have always been respecting that from the very right. beginning doing the war. So I think that by saying that, that leaves the flexibility for China to adopt a pro-Ukraine post-conflict position in mm. the future, mm. uh, while including as many issues uh, concerning all the parties involving the conflict with Russia, uh, with the Global South, with the European Union, uh, to basically to meet everyone's demands, which means it will be equally disappointing to everyone as well. <laughs> Um, but I think that the main purpose of that is to give 
the international community a sign that China is thinking and trying to do something while leaving in la-、uh, enough flexibility for China's policy changes、uh, in future. I think that is the main purpose.、Um, but going back to the、uh, previous discussion,、mm-hmm. um, I don't think China can do much at this stage,、uh, even after twelve points, because we know last year, shortly after、uh, the peace position, the Chinese foreign policy has been going through this kind of round of reshuffling that has、yes. not really ended until now. So that's that's not only that as I previously argued that China does not have such an impact. As imagined by many of my European、uh, counterparts, to access on Russia, neither right now China, with its foreign policy decision making, is able to make such a big turn in kind of policy making with all the foreign policy's capacity at this moment. With this reshuffling going on, the priorities for China at this moment in foreign policy is about the neighboring security and the major country and the major country relations, which. <laughs> With Russia and also United States, so I think that considering the ch- like the current decision makers' capacity, this has been in a way on the top list for the Chinese decision makers. Xiao Yu, you've made this point a couple of times now that you know that you don't believe that they have leverage. But what we've heard from Bartosz is that they they very much believe that because of the economic dependency, they do exercise leverage. How would you、uh, address that that counterclaim? Because by translating China's economic leverage to political influence, would in a way transgress China's long-standing policy of non-intervention in domestic affairs.、Mm. China can do that if China want to, but this will trigger such a big turn and transformation in China's foreign policies, and this will be highly debated, even among those who are sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause, and who probably want to punish Russia in a way. They would oppose the ideas of translating China's economic power into political influence. Once you open the gate with Russia, then you can easily argue China should and can translate economic influence in other regions as well. So this will put China's foreign policy in such a fundamental change, which I don't think the Chinese foreign community will try to do and can't afford anytime soon. But I mean, somebody might argue back that Chinese foreign policy hasn't always been shy about using the economic leverage. I mean, for example,、uh, iron ore, wine, lobster, all sorts of other things from from Australia f- to punish them over the political transgression of demanding a an investigation into COVID origins.、Uh, so I, I mean, I think maybe it when it's only when we're talking about pe- pure powers, maybe. Yeah. Well, China only used those measures when. In a way that the disputes are about China's domestic politics, you rarely find any example of China translating economic powers into political influence when they actually involve international affairs and domestic affairs of other countries.、I、so if it, yeah, it, the other country challenge China's position on China's domestic politics, Taiwan, Xinjiang, China can leverage those economic powers, but you rarely find any example when China trying to influence the domestic politics with other countries when. It is not directly engaged with China's domestic politics.、Mm. I think this will require really a big step for China、uh, in foreign policy thinking to do that. And I don't think there's this environment or consensus either among the com-、uh, intellectual community or among policymakers to make that change anytime soon. Vida, I want to ask you now:、uh, Do you think that there is any meaningful overlap between what the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has put forward? 
the uh, 12 points and the 10 point proposal that came out of, of, of Vladimir Zelensky's office. Yeah, as I said, it's something in common. So I, but I really understand what is a classical Chinese diplomacy is. And it was predictable that China would not involved in this conflict and just try to distance itself like a classical Chinese diplomacy and policy. But still, we need to find something what would be in common to discuss. As I said, it would be like humanitarian aid involvement. It's nothing to do for China. I think it, it has this experience in other conflicts before. So another, it's also important to continue this nuclear security talks. It's crucial importance for, for Ukraine. And we are trying, from my perspective, is a top priority of Ukrainian diplomats and politicians to talk about this nuclear security with China, uh, as, as well as with US and UK. It should be uh, some uh, protection from the global leaders, from the great powers to secure our nuclear security uh, while we are not a NATO member. And also, uh, that also in, in, in common between uh, two plans, Chinese and Ukrainians, it's food security. We need China to help us to restore our Black Sea Grain Initiative. And last summer, our trade representative, Mr. Kachka, he, he, he visited Beijing and he had a constructive talks with his Chinese colleagues. At the result, we just see only one uh, like outcome of this visit, Chinese market now it's open for Ukrainian honey, but it's not enough. We need a real constructive role for uh, for storing this Black Sea uh, corridor, because we see like U Ukrainian logistics blocked in all ways, including Polish border. It's 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 a crucial like. Crucial for 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 us because we really rely on Polish uh, friends and colleagues, and now we need to continue our export and trade. And we lost, unfortunately, we lost a big share with our turnover with China, like about forty percent. But China is still interested in uh, trading with us, and also including grain, corn, and barrel. So we and China is still our key trade partner. So right. we, we would like to continue this dialogue and we'd like to invite all our uh, alliances and partners to speak with us on the same platform. And also I'd like to add, not from a uh, uh, European Union perspective, but from American perspective, uh, we, we know that US and China relations, it's more, it's very, um, how to say, it's a co uh, consequential relations for all countries. So we need to understand and uh, how uh, the U.S. and China relations will develop in future. It's it's very important for us, and we are watching uh, about these primaries in the U.S. and it's not helping us to win this war. Yeah, that's America a very. It's not united. That's a very good segue into the exact question that I wanted to ask to Bartosz and to Klaus, which is this. There's this focus in our conversation and a lot of conversation on China's role. Uh, one of the great gains, I think, in the immediate aftermath uh, from the, the Western point of view was the, the strategic congruity between the United States and the EU more broadly, even beyond NATO, right? There was very little 
space between their views for a while and that seemed to reverse in its tracks the move towards strategic autonomy uh, of individual EU countries or of the EU as a total. And that was something that China probably was disappointed in. But the threat to that EU unity, uh, EU American uh, condominium, seems to come more to me from the United States and its political uncertainties that it's facing in the run-up to November than from China. Why isn't that more prominent in the conversation? Anyone? Bartosz? So, uh, yeah, it's clear that uh, we we are really, um, well, following the developments in the U.S. and awaiting the outcome of the U.S. elections. Uh, there are some worries that uh, one of the first decisions of uh, um, Donald Trump, if he wins, might be to leave the sanctions on Russia, right? We have to have this scenario in mind, right? Which would profoundly change the uh, economic dynamics, right? Not only between Russia and the US, but also China and the EU, etc., etc. So in recent weeks, with, there is a sense of shifting atmosphere in the EU, at least what, what I'm hearing that uh, we have to be prepared for this worst-case worst case scenario, which would uh, open the space for looking for some sort of uh, uh, compromise with China, right? Including the economic tensions, which are on the, on the, on the rise, as you know. Uh, it, it includes the EVs. Uh, it also uh, takes into account wind farms. Etc. Etc. Because the, we have to bear in mind that a couple of years ago, the dynamics between the EU and China was quite an opposite, right? It was a pretty a complementary relation, right? Now it's quite different because China is really competitive to the EU markets, to the, to the EU producers. So there is this uh, rising tide of protectionism on both sides, of course, uh, and also in the US. And the thing is that uh, for for, the, for for China, the how, how China understands the EU strategic autonomy is that it's, uh, it's I think it's uh, pretty close to how French government understands the strategic autonomy, which means basically to fend off the U.S. influence from the U.S. Uh, from, from from Europe, right? In Davos uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Macron said that uh, uh, for him the ideal example of striking a good balance between the U.S. and Chinese influence is President Vucic, president of Serbia. So for me, it's a, it's a sign that, you know, if you consider that this as a, an ideal balance, so what does it mean to be dependent on China or U.S. or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Klaus, if you wanted to weigh in there, I, I'd love that. And But then, of course, I want to turn uh, to Xiaoyu and ask about uh, the, the view on this question from Beijing. Yeah. I think... Um, the Biden administration, right from the beginning, tried to recreate transatlantic unity and achieved that to some extent. But then, of course, Putin invaded in February 2022, and that really pushed the uh, transatlantic allies together. It also pushed the European Union countries together. So in a way, you can say this would not have happened to the same extent if there had been no war, if Putin had not invaded. Regarding you. We have only largely two major outliers, that is the, um, or the EU, NATO now, that is Hungary in the uh, uh, EU and then Turkey, Hungary also in, in NATO. So far, the alliance has held. 
whether it will hold in the future has an awful lot to do with the length of the war, with the energy question still to some extent, with the resource question, the financial question. Um, at the moment, because of this threat uh, which is uh, seen uh, by Putin in the uh, in the geographical proximity of most European countries, that is what is keeping the EU together. And I can't see that it will disappear anytime soon. That doesn't mean it will never disappear. I'm not saying that. But uh, for the time being, you know, Russia is still seen as such an aggressor who could well come into, Putin, into Poland or the Baltic states, whether or not that is realistic. At least that is the perception of many in Europe. And that holds the, both the EU and uh, the NATO alliance together. And the big factor of insecurity is, of course, uh, um, Donald Trump here, and we don't know what uh, will will happen there. Um, if I can just uh, raise uh, one or two points, which uh, my Chinese colleague um, uh, uh, just said, and maybe I, I, I misunderstood it, but I always believed that the Chinese uh, principle of international affairs was to observe sovereignty, the sovereignty and independence of a uh, of a, uh, another country. That clearly has not happened with Ukraine and Russia, but China does not seem to have much criticized that, though one of the major principles of its international relations policies has been clearly uh, uh, undermined and uh, disrupted. And secondly, uh, when you look at what China is doing in the outside world, like many other powers, I'm not saying China is unique here, but it joins in to disinformation campaigns. We know about police stations in the United States. And I'm sure other countries, Russia, even the United States, may do that as well, though we may not know about it always. But certainly we know that the Chinese are very actively involved in uh, uh, getting mixed up in the domestic affairs of other countries. So I wonder how does that uh, you know, uh, correspond to what you said, that China would always not get involved in the internal affairs of other countries and uh, and stick to its foreign policy, uh, uh, international principles. So you, uh, you, you can answer that if you want, or I can jump in because I, I think that... Um, I may have misunderstood what what he what he said. You know, well, I think, I think a little you, bit of you, clarification would help. Yeah, I think you you have the the idea right. You know that yes, sovereignty. There is an obvious sort of disconnect between China's stated commitment to sovereignty, sovereignty and territorial integrity, and its failure to to full throatedly condemn what was obviously a a violation of those exact principles. I think that Beijing sees its enumeration of those principles each time as a, a a dig at Russia, whenever it says it, it believes that that is an implicit criticism of what Russia did. It's it's not a very satisfying one. It certainly doesn't count to me as full-throated. As for these transnational repressive mechanisms, police stations, next time we have lunch, Klaus, I'll, I'll tell you what the, the real truth of that well, is. Well, is. Uh, I know, I, and of course, but it's a, it's a habit of great powers, let's put it that, of all great powers to get involved in the domestic affairs of their opponents and rivals. I don't think that anyone can deny it. That includes China and Russia and the United States and probably a lot of European countries as well, whether we know about it or not precisely. To greater and lesser extents, uh, you know, Anyway, let's 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 move on. I because I there there's still a couple of questions that I think are very very important to us here, and and maybe uh, let me first though get Xiaoyu to to address what I was asking uh, the both of you about 
about strategic autonomy in the EU, Beijing's perspective on that, whether it believes that the war constituted a big reversal for a major strategic hope that China has nourished for some time. Mm. Um, in 2023, after my visit, both in the European Union and also in Ukraine, I find there's a perception gap about the the very idea of autonomy between uh, the EU and also China. I think China very much welcomed the idea of strategic autonomy, thinking that is referring to the security autonomy from the United States, which means the European Union finally realized that it needs to defend itself and further discredit the United States as a reliable security partner, especially with the possibility of re-election of Trump. Um, but I think that from the European counterpart, when, when they discuss about the very idea of autonomy, there's three layers of autonomy. Firstly, it's about the energy autonomy, which is very clear that they cannot rely on Russia anymore. Security autonomy, um, before the U.S. election, I think right now there's a still very much a, a, like a unity that mm-hmm. Europe needs to work very closely with the United States, even closer probably in comparison to before. And thirdly, it's about the, the economic autonomy. And the main concern is about China, whether they can still rely on China or not. So I think strategic autonomy for European Union has these three layers of meaning. But for the Chinese, it's mainly focused on the security autonomy. And on that level, um, the impression which I got last year is that everyone is waiting. The Ukrainians are waiting for the U.S. election. The Europeans are waiting. The Chinese are, are also waiting. And they firmly believe that with the re-election of Donald Trump, there will be a push for the security autonomy on the European level, which means that China is probably going to work on that position because in a way that a stronger European Union, military-wise, is not going to do anything harmful to China. But it might further discredit the United States as a reliable regional security partner that will have implications for East Asian countries. Because all East Asian countries will look at the European example and realize that the United States may not fulfill its security commitment anymore. And this will probably will give China more leverage in organizing the regional or reorganizing the regional security architecture in East Asia. So I think this is my kind of kind of uh, assessment from the partners. Fantastically, very, very lucid, very, very uh, well, well articulated answer there. Uh, and thank you. There are so many other angles that we might take up on when thinking about how Ukraine enters into China's strategic considerations. Uh, my sense is they go beyond China's relations strictly with the EU or the US to include. Uh, some might suggest, you know, uh, you know, exploiting, I don't know if that's the right word, the, the ambivalence of some nations of the global south, uh, as well as their historical relations with the Soviet Union, I think mainly of countries like India, uh, then with Russia, to widen those, those nations' strategic distance from the U.S. Um, however, our I think our time is a little bit limited. We won't be able to explore all of this, so I would love to get this group, same group, back together uh, to talk about some of these things another time. I do, however, want to talk about one issue that I require, I think it requires a little bit of sensitivity to bring up. Um, and that is Beijing's bottom line for what an armistice would, I mean, maybe more to the point, not just Beijing's bottom line, but Ukraine's bottom line for what would be acceptable, Russia's bottom line for what could be acceptable. Agreements 
are not in the end made by different parties simply signing on to high-flown principles like the ones that Beijing has repeated, but rather about specific compromises that are very hard to negotiate and are just as difficult to accept. I think we can all empathize. I think everyone listening, everyone here present uh, with the way the Ukrainians must feel whenever someone suggests blithely that they have to compromise uh, when it was Russia, after all, who was the clear aggressor. And when for two years it's been Russian troops on Ukrainian soil, it's completely unbalanced. I'm certain that if I were in the Ukrainian position, I would feel exactly the same and wouldn't want to hear a word uh, about the sorts of compromises that parties with much less skin in the game just kind of casually, offhandedly suggest. So as difficult as this is, I am going to ask, does anyone have a sense for any starting basis whatsoever for a set of agreements that, I mean, it seems unimportant whether Beijing could sign on to them, but more importantly, that Ukrainians could eventually accept, that Russians might find acceptable Barring a significant shift in the in the the strategic situation on the ground, in the disposition and the, the relative strength of forces, what could be one nugget which would be a basis for anything like a compromise? I don't I don't mind who starts. So, uh, you know, anyone who wants to, to open their mouth first is welcome to. And I I I, I uh, you're in a safe space, <laughs> so please. Nobody's. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Shall I call on you? Yeah. yeah. If I may, I just say a few words. Uh, Ukraine is not ready to discuss any sensitive questions with any kind of like alliance or enemies. I don't know. We are not uh, trying to convince anybody, but it's very clear that Ukraine is not giving up territories. We are not in this position to discuss territories. So we'd like to make it clear for Chinese partners, for Chinese, uh, I don't know, syntax, we are not willing to discuss these sensitive questions with in any platform. And now we are really understand that our future relations with China and the EU future relations with China will depend on Chinese behavior on this war. It's it's very important to China to step step up in any level, in any point, and just to show this constructive role of responsible player, as well as U the U U.S. also need to understand where would be any kind of compromise to talk with China, and we know very. Uh, very well that the main uh, fraction of the uh, U.S.-China relations it's not Ukraine it's in the Pacific, so there there are a lot of to to talk and uh, with like both sides and Ukraine could be a point of compromise between the U.S. and China, which at least start to talk in this trilateral format. It's important to to build this platform before the, the election before like any consequences of this election. So it's, I'd like to stop here. Interesting. Now, show you what, what Vina just said. I think uh, we all understand emotionally at least uh, on that level, but it doesn't seem to offer much for inducement for China to come up with any, any um, meaningful uh, statement. It's, it's like they're, it, you're basically saying, we want you to participate in a peace process entirely on our side and entirely on our terms without even touching the possibility of of any compromise that could it you know bring the russians somehow to the table which ultimately 
as little as we want. Barring a total Ukrainian victory would be the only way to uh, arrive at a peace process. So it doesn't seem to leave China much room for maneuver, right? Uh, Xiaoyi, do you want to address that? Yeah, um, during my visit in Ukraine, I think all the Ukrainian policymakers delivered that point very, express, uh, very explicitly and clear to me, which I, which I believe would be in the same manner when they spoke to the Chinese decision makers. Um, and I think that uh, right now that China realized very clearly that, uh, you know, although that the intellectual, the international community might have the heart with Ukraine, in terms of the mind, that someone at some point need to say that like the difficult strategic decision need to be made about when to make the ne negotiation would be the best for Ukraine in future. And China might realize that it's it is definitely not the best actor to say that at this moment. So I think that um, uh, China will still, in a way, have this kind of uh, wait-and-see policy after the U.S. election. I don't think China will set up its action at this very moment, realistically speaking. And I think that if we leave China aside, and if we just discuss about uh, Ukraine and Russian negotiation, what I kind of think what might be a possible solution and a potential like a, a likely scenario is that both sides might enter a frozen conflict at this very stage. Mm. Uh, and in the internationally mediated agreement, what might happen is that Ukraine got to declare that it still has the territorial right to the 1991 borders in the agreement. But what happened is that in effect, uh, that the Russia still got the status control of its current control territories at this very moment. And I think both sides will enter later on a more kind of a hard discussion and difficult discussion, probably with eruptions, with future conflict to make the border shift. But I think that entering a frozen conflict with Ukrainian declaring that the territorial rights to the 1991 border might be a solution that can be pushed both by the United States and the European Union at this stage with the un, um, with the kind of like uh, the uh, uncertainties with the U.S. election. Uh, because at this very moment, I think Ukraine need time. It need time to regroup itself and to be more prepared at this very stage with the uncertainties lying ahead. Thank you very much. Let me pass on now to, to Bartosz. Uh, can you uh, weigh in here? And, and what, what do you think? Uh, I know these are difficult questions. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, well, when it comes to, to the idea of frozen conflict, accepting the frozen conflict, I remember uh, the uh, information published after the uh, Zelensky call and I think it was the Minister Kuleba, Minister of Foreign Affairs, said that there's no room for discussion about the frozen conflict. So it's, <clears throat> but you know, the time will probably we are in a different situation now. But uh, I, I feel that I'm not really in the position to well to discuss this, given the sensitivity of of this issue, especially for for the Ukraine our Ukraine colleagues, but. Uh, my understanding is that uh, in uh, at present uh, Ukraine would not accept these terms. I mean, any kind of frozen conflict, which would in the long run would act against 
uh, the security not only of Ukraine, but also the security of Europe in larger terms, right? Right. Uh, so then we have to think of who would benefit if this uh, this scenario would uh, would materialize. And I'm still thinking about once again uh, about Russia and China. Uh, one one more thing which uh, which uh, caught my attention after Li Hui's uh, visit to Europe and uh, Ukraine, uh, European countries, and Moscow last year is that. Uh, um, when he returned to Beijing and there was a press conference, uh, at the very end of, uh, of the conference, he was asked, uh, what was the reason for the Russian military operation in Donbas? And he said that, according to my uh, sources, I mean, to, to Russian officials and officers, uh, the reason was to protect the peoples of Donbas. So I think, uh, I'm not sure to what extent we have to treat such um, statements as uh, mm, relevant to you know general policy making in China, but uh, I think it gives us a sense of what what is the perception of uh, of the Chinese uh, mm, well government officials on the conflict. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, last word goes to Klaus Laris on this on this question. Yeah, thank you. I think I agree here with uh, my colleague from Beijing that that may well be the outcome, unfortunately, some sort of frozen conflict. But we know from Moldova and particularly from uh, Georgia that that is not a very happy scenario and creates further instability, certainly not more stability. What really is required here is that Putin also makes some compromises. If if he wants to start negotiations on the basis, I'm not giving up anything of that 20% of Ukrainian territory which I've conquered, then no one will even enter negotiations. So both That's sides right. need to at least indicate that they are prepared to compromise in a genuine way, not just rhetorically. Secondly, it still leaves the question open, can we trust Putin? Even if you arrive at such a solution, you know, 10% here, 10% there, whatever, you know, it's difficult to, to decide that now. But can we really trust Putin to stick to it and not to start all over again after six months' time or, or use guerrilla forces, little green men, and so on? And here I think the international community, including China, perhaps has a role to play you know, we do need to employ UN police forces, UN soldiers, perhaps a little bit like in Cyprus. Uh, and here the Chinese would, of course, have an important role to play in a constructive, internationalized way. And he, that is, I think, where a China contribution could really come into it and convince the General Assembly and, of course, the Security Council even more to go down that road. But distrust of Putin and Russia is so high that some sort of international reassurance needs to be uh, employed. Otherwise, any peace negotiations will not even uh, come off the ground. Kaiser, I, I'd like to add one I forgot to say. Uh, Xiaoyu was in Ukraine and he had a chance to meet President Zelensky. So it's very important to say it's he's the only among us who had this chance to, to, to visit the meeting with President Zelensky. And yeah. also, I very welcome all thinkers and scholars to come to Ukraine and to understand the situation in Ukraine from inside. 
and to understand how important to keep this territorial integrity for not only for Ukrainians, but also for our soldiers who are every day, every day in this battle line. So it would be like explore explosion in, in our society if we start to talk about like giving up giving up territories. So it's it's not impossible at the moment. It's it's important to know Ukrainian opinion polls for Chinese colleagues. So if you are willing to share about your your direct uh, encounter with President Zelensky, we would be honored. Well, yeah, um, I mean it was such an honor for me as well. Uh, and during my visit, um, I had a chance to meet with him and also several of the senior uh, diplomats in in Ukraine. And I think the impression which I got, um, there was such a contrast because when I was in the European Union, I was meeting with the uh, European Union diplomat, uh, which of course that they have this kind of very kind of a moral kind of uh, um, language about persuading China to do more. And when I was in Ukraine, when I was meeting with uh, President Zelensky, I realized they have a very kind of uh, realistic evaluation about about China's position. Uh, and it's very clear to them that I think it came to a point that when they said that we understand that China has a long border with Russia and China probably cannot openly broke up with Russia for its own national security. But we do appreciate what China can do in terms of three issues, which they said. Firstly, it's about openly respect Ukraine's um, territorial integrity and sovereignty. And secondly, it's about um, being very clear on the non-use of nuclear weapons. And thirdly, it's about no selling of lethal weapons to Russia. And I think those three points have been delivered as the right line or baseline for Ukraine. And the Chinese side for now, I think from my judgment, had followed uh, those recommendations. So I think those will be the base consensus between China and Ukraine for this time being. Uh, why they can move forward, uh, I totally agree with Vita, that people need to talk more to see in which areas can we make minor, uh, minor breakthroughs so that in a way that the Ukrainian voice can be heard uh, much more clearly and also loudly within the Chinese audience. Klaus, I had told you how you would get the last word, but as it turns out, we get the last word from President Zelensky uh, in a, a delightful surprise, so I think you're probably going to be okay with that. On that note, I want to thank all the participants on this fantastic panel, especially Vita Golod, who, who helped to put it together and who really brought us together for this. Um, my great gratitude for organizing this. I look forward to, to seeing you once I'm back in Chapel Hill. Uh, to Bartosz Kowalski, who w had fantastic insights for us uh, from the Central European perspective, looking both at Ukraine and, and at the EU. And, of course, uh, to Liu Xiaoyi, who brought, I think, some incredibly lucid perspectives from Beijing, not only giving us the Chinese perspective, but also, I think, helping to uh, break open this idea that uh, there's some sort of monolithic support among Chinese, the, the Chinese strategic class for, for Putin in this. And finally, to my friend Klaus Laris, who I look also forward to seeing once I'm back stateside. Um, and I'll set you straight on that whole police, you know. And thank you. <laughs> and thank you to Kaiser for moderating the event so successfully and so well and so sort of balanced. <laughs> <laughs> 
Looking forward to seeing everyone. Um, thank you once again. Uh, I will uh, get this this program edited and get it out on the podcast, uh, and I'll try to make a pri- make that a priority. So thank you, um, everyone who who was listening online, and uh, really appreciate it. I see some very kind reactions coming up. You've been listening to the Cynical Podcast. The show is produced, recorded, engineered, edited, and mastered by me, Kaiser Guo. Support the show through Substack at Seneca.substack.com, where there's a growing offering of terrific original China-related writing and audio. Or email me at SenecaPod at gmail.com if you have ideas on how you can help out. And don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Enormous gratitude to the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for East Asian Studies for supporting the show this year. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.